contents of a building, but of our perspective. And again, that's exactly what Jesus does uh, in our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 6. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 6, let me give you just a sense of a roadmap of where we've been and where we're headed. You know, we've been working our way through what is arguably the most famous sermon ever given. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And for our purposes this morning, we're in, the, we're in the middle of a section that Jesus is dealing with the issue of hypocrisy. Jesus has been confronting religious hypocrisy head on as it concerns our giving, our prayer, and our fasting. That's what we've been looking at. Jesus has been addressing those things, right? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says, do not do as the hypocrites do. In chapter 6, verse 5, he says, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Chapter 6, verse 8, he says, you should not be like them. Chapter 6, verse 16 says, do not as the hypocrites do. Do you get Jesus' point so far? Jesus is blasting the hypocrites away. This religious establishment had become so entrenched in hypocrisy. In our text this morning, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, we'll learn about what it means to relocate our treasures. So follow along with me as I read Matthew 6, 19 through 24. This is the very words of Jesus Christ. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus is warning us here, and the listeners to the Sermon on the Mount He's warning him. He's giving us three sets of choices. He's giving us three decisions to make. He's using three metaphors. And then based around these three metaphors that we're going to be learning today, we have three evaluations that we need to make. If you're taking notes this morning, and number one, first, you must choose a single treasure. You must choose a single treasure. Look back at verse 19. What does he say? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And the most literal translation of the original language could be something like this. Stop laying up for yourselves treasures. See, Jesus is forbidding something that the disciples and these earliest followers of Christ, this crowd who's sitting here listening, are already doing Jesus knows his audience. He speaks to them directly. And he's going to speak to us directly and personally this morning with direct application to our own lives. Jesus wants them to understand the significance of what he's doing and what he's trying to correct in their life. And the imagery here is, is really based on the question of what is it that you treasure? 
What do you find value in? Where do you find great worth? The words that Jesus uses here brings the kind of imagery uh, as, of stacking or storing up. It's like taking a bunch of coins as a kid and you stack quarters on top of quarters on top of quarters until the whole thing falls over. You remember the game Jenga? For those of you who've never played the game Jenga, you have these wooden blocks stacked on top of each other. And the idea of the game is to stack that tower as high as you can get it. But the, the catch is that you're taking blocks from the bottom and sticking it up on top. See, the higher you get, the less stable it is because you're building those blocks from the bottom. See, Jesus is talking about a more significant problem than the game of Jenga, right? The problem here is that these people are stacking up treasures for themselves, piling on top of one thing on top of another on top of another. And the key to understanding this is in verse 19, it says, do not lay up for yourself treasures, where? On earth. The significance here is what he's truly trying to deal with, which is this idea of accumulating possessions to the point of finding your identification or personal gratification and satisfaction in those treasures that you store up on earth. And I don't know everyone's uh, situation when they were growing up. Um, maybe you didn't have much. Maybe you're in the position now where you don't have much. But if you're in that position, you remember where you, where you finally saved up just enough money to buy that, that, that thing that you wanted, right? That, that thing became your prized possession. You didn't ever want it to leave your sight. In fact, if it was valuable enough, you might have put it in the back of your closet. Maybe if you had a safe, you'd put it in your safe so that no one would ever get to it. It was extremely valuable, and maybe you'd start thinking to yourself, well, because now that I have this, this will be my self-preservation. It'll be my self-insulation from any want in the world. You'd, have never, you'd never have any worries again. You'd never have to work again. You'd never need anything else in this life. And you might think to yourself, well, Jesus didn't understand what it was like to be in poverty, right? Or to have want or to live in the environment that I live in. So wouldn't he just, wouldn't he want me to store up things for myself, adding to my savings? Wouldn't he want me to just stack it higher and higher? Because right, let's be honest. When you don't have much, there's a fear that you have that you would probably, uh, that you fear of experiencing that want again. Going into those difficult days of just not having much. But if anyone understands poverty... It's Christ. Not only did he give up the riches and the glory of heaven when he humbled himself to become a man, Jesus came from the poor town of Nazareth. He knew exactly the, difficult of the, the difficulty of the people of the time and even our own situations today. See, if you look back, Israel was an agrarian society. Israel was all about farming and fishing and shepherding. And so for the people listening to this Sermon on the Mount, if they worked, they would eat. If they didn't work, they wouldn't eat. If it rained, that they were good. If it didn't rain, that was problematic for them. When they went fishing and caught something, it was a good day. But if they didn't, they would have, wouldn't have been able to eat. 
so you can understand that there would be this inclination, right, of those disciples listening to the Sermon on the Mount. They'd be inclined to provide for themselves as much as they could to the extent that they might start thinking that they themselves were providing for their needs. But look back at Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. Look at it. Give us this day. This is what Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. You see, some people, they were thinking that they were providing for themselves. And therefore, because of this constant provision, they were thinking that they should keep acquiring whatever it was that they were possessing. And they mistakenly failed to recognize, first and foremost, it is God who is providing for them. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, this is a temptation for us every day. Right? God does not provide for you in order that you might, according to verse 19, store up for yourself. And this is that, 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 that mindset, that perspective is, is where you tell yourself, this is what I have done. This is what I have gained. This is what I have worked for. Maybe in modern terms, it'd be like, you know, this is where all my investment security rests, right? My 401k is loaded. My portfolio is stacked. But look again what it says in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, rust, and thieves destroy. Jesus introduces three problems with storing treasures on earth. Three problems. First one is the moth. Are mothballs still a thing? Yes. Yeah, okay. I remember growing up, uh, going to my grandparents' house growing up. My parents are here today. They, they know. My, my grandparents' house growing up, I always thought it was, that, you know, their, their closets, maybe their clothes just smelled just a little, little weird, a little off. And that's when I first learned about moths and what they do to clothes and what people do to combat them, right? Moths eat clothes. And so in the first century, Jews didn't have uh, Marshalls or Kohl's or Amazon Prime, right? Then their wardrobe uh, uh, consisted of an undergarment and then uh, the, an overcloak, a tunic that was made of wool. And you'd probably just own a couple of those. So the colors were they're kind of bland and, you know, Fashion wasn't their main concern in the first century. And so Jesus is telling them, even in the most basic of possessions, your clothes, you cannot even guarantee that they will be preserved. See, the people would want to preserve their tunics, right? Because they'd want to pass it down to the next generation. But he says, the moth could destroy that in an instant. The second problem that he brings up is rust, rust. Some translations say vermin. And each of those translations, whether it's rust or vermin, it's translating the word eating, eating. It's the idea of something eating or destroying something. Again, remember, this is an agrarian society and their possessions could be clothes. It could be stock, stockpiled food or collections of precious coins. And here Jesus is saying that your possessions can be eaten away through corrosion or eaten away by rodents. Right? All of it can be here today and then boom, gone tomorrow. Then he goes into the third security breach, third one. In verse 19, the third problem is thieves. Thieves that break in and steal. We do, we do everything in our life to make it hard for thieves to enter 
our houses, right? I've been sitting here at, at church some Sundays and, you know, hearing car alarms going off. And it's usually mine because I've sat on my keys wrong. But we use security in, in, in a lot of different areas, right? Metal bars, concrete, uh, barbed wire. We do everything to keep thieves out. The disciples, they didn't have ring cameras. They go back and look at the footage. The disciples that were sitting here lived in houses made of uh, uh, mud-baked brick that could be just dug through, picked out. And we know, right, thieves will always find a way. Thieves will always find a way. And this is a reality for the the first century uh, audience here as it is for us. There were no bank vaults at the time. There were no gun safes at the time. There's no online banking with uh, fraud security. Those walls could be broken down. And most, most of the first century Jews that were listening to this, they lived with their possessions right out in front of them. And it seems that, if Jesus, that Jesus is recognizing this and, and there's this continued human desire that we have to provide security for ourselves. Please hear me on this. Don't get me wrong. It is not inherently irresponsible to provide security, but it can become sinful if we believe that we are providing the security as an act of provision instead of God. Do you get that? Let me say it again. It's not inherently uh, irresponsible for us to provide security for ourselves, but it can become sinful if we believe that we are the one providing that security instead of God. Listen to Paul's word in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, as we think about what Scripture says and warns us of living in this world. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, We have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Continuing on in verse 9 of the same chapter, it says, But those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 12, where the man is storing up for himself in all his barns, he's putting all his treasure in the barns. What do you remember that happens to him? In Luke chapter 12, verse 20 to 21, Jesus says, God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own all of what you have prepared? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's getting at the issue of our study in chapter 6, right? Do not do it, church. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that you can provide for your own security. Or that you can provide for your own needs as as a representative of your own identity. You cannot do it. So where should our treasure be? He says in verse 20, look at the text, your your treasure should be in heaven. And notice the idea here, right? Christ is not condemning the idea of accumulating treasure. And I want to be clear of what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. Jesus is not saying that having possessions is bad. Jesus is not saying that having nice possessions is bad. Jesus is not saying that you should shop only at thrift stores and nowhere else. Jesus is not saying that you should only drive beater cars. 
Jesus is not concerned with that. In fact, if you went back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 19, Paul talks about the, the people in the church that do have a lot of money. This is what he instructs Timothy to instruct them. He says, teach those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy so that they store up for themselves the treasure on a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Jesus is not condemning wealth. He's not condemning the planning uh, for the future, what to do with our wealth. He's condemning the self-absorbed, all-consuming insecurity where you believe that you are the one providing for tomorrow. And you do not need to go any further back to chapter 6, verse 11, where you're praying for your daily bread. We must pray and ask God for our provision in this life. You know, COVID rocked our world. It turned everything upside down. I remember talking with Christy about the realities of this virus. You know, making decisions on who we would see and who we would not see. You know, I was concerned for church members here and how some of us would manage if we contracted it. You know, some of us got it and powered through a, a week of coughing and not being able to smell or taste. Some of us got it and didn't even know it. Others of us got it and were hospitalized. You know, some of our family members got it and God called them home. But long before COVID or Delta or Omicron or anything of those viruses to be concerned about, there was another virus spreading and Jesus addresses it. It's the, the virus called affluenza. Affluenza. If you don't know what affluenza is, it's a virus and a way of thinking where you're so worried about being affluent with what you own, with what you drive, with where you live, with what you wear, with what headphones you have, what shoes you walk, away, uh, walk around in. That's where you find your security and identity and your friendships in what you own. And if we're honest, again, with Santa Clarita, this is a huge temptation for us. After all, it's awesome town, right? We can often be so tempted to find our identity in what we own. And it really... It's only been made worse with the rise of social media where we get to see everyone's supposed beauty and possessions just with a swipe of a finger. And keeping up with the Joneses has gone digital. But Jesus wants to tell his people, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to give in to that. Jesus is telling his disciples that this is not what God intends for you. And it's a foolish exercise that will never deliver Possessions will not provide for your security. It will not offer you a confident identity. Do you remember the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And the answer to that question, right, is everyone, right? Who doesn't want to be a millionaire? And so many people turned, tuned in to watch it. And it was a cultural phenomenon that took over the nation. It seemed like everyone watched it. And it was a show that represented what everybody wanted, Money, money, and more money. But look at our text again. Jesus again says it's going to be a problem because verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. He says, you have a decision to make. You have a choice to make. Store up your treasures here on earth or store your treasures in heaven. And wherever you choose to lay up your treasure reveals where your heart is. Where you store up heavenly treasure, it'll mean, that if, you, if you are storing up your treasure in heaven, it'll mean that you sacrifice here on earth. It means that you'll sacrifice your time, your money, your resources, your home is spent on investing in the future reward, right? You're investing in kingdom building, gospel focused activities. It's where you're sacrificed to make the gospel known in this world. And so the first choice that we have is we need to choose a single treasure. Number two, second, Jesus says, you must choose a single focus. You must choose a single focus. Look at verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus here, he's basically taking us further down the track with another metaphor. But instead of money and treasure, it's the eye and the body. He's changing from accounting metaphors and pictures to now this physiological terminology. See, the eye is the member of the body that acts like a lamp. What he's saying here, by again, by way of analogy, is through the eye, the body finds its direction. Where your eye looks, there your body goes. When we think about someone who's visually impaired or blind, how do they get around? Right? They have to find other ways than using their eyes. They have to use a cane or a dog to be able to see for them, to lead them. And so the idea is through the eye, the whole body is directed. Well, Jesus is making a statement here. Right? He's saying there's two possibilities. Your body is full of light or your body is full of darkness. And what determines the result is the condition of the eye. And what determines the result, and the picture here is healthy eyes uh, and bad eyes. It's a spiritual metaphor just basically to ask the question, how well do you see? So ask yourself, how well do I see? You know, perhaps you've been tempted during the busy seasons of life to keep the scriptures closed or to not come to church because you have a lot on your plate. You know, maybe the extent of your exposure to the scriptures is only what you hear at Church of the Canyons on a Sunday morning. And that wouldn't be uncommon for a lot of people. But when you do that, you're basically closing your life off to the clarity that God's word offers. The scriptures add clarity to your life and your decisions and what you long for and what you hope for. So when you take a a break from scriptures, when you close this book, those times will produce apathy or a lack of energy, spiritually speaking. There's a laziness or a, a lack of excitement or motivation to get back to work where you say, let's go, but you just can't get it going. Ask yourself this question. Have you found yourself withdrawing from the church community? Has that caused you to sort of wilt and shrink and shrivel spiritually? Or on the other hand, are you eager to be with God's people because of what you're learning from the scriptures? Where you say, let's rock and roll, let's serve the Lord. Let's plan this VBS coming up. 
Yeah, we hit a slowdown because of COVID. We don't have a senior pastor, but let's get back to the mission that God has called us to. Are you energized to partake in strategic evangelism? Do you engage in hospitality? Are you being a testimony and a witness to your community? This is just an example of how we uh, think through life with the scriptures. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And that is determined based on whether you see life through the lens of God's word or through the world around us. And if you do have world-tinted lenses on that distorts the image, uh, 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 the images that we see, the messages and the messages that we hear, Jesus is telling us this morning, you must make a choice. Where will the disciple of Christ direct his vision? What is it that the, that the Christian will look to to hold his attention? Jesus ultimately wants his disciples to have a, keep a single, clearly focused eye on the light. Right? This is a true mark of the kingdom citizen. True disciples do not live for this temporal reality. True disciples are not deterred from our focus. And that's why we have hope during these times. Right? School shootings, inflations, gas prices, layoffs, sicknesses, wars, famine, persecution, or whatever else the new cycle is going to bring us next. These days do not define the Christian. And as morbid as it might sound to the ears of some, what's the worst thing that can happen to a Christian? We die? And then what? 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How encouraging is that? Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek first his kingdom and all his righteousness. So trying to direct your attention to too many places will never profit you. You'll not be able to accomplish what God has intended for your life when you are filled with worldly pursuits. To illustrate it, let me try, try to think of a soldier. And as you look at some of the past conflicts um, of the United States and, the, and world wars, someone has estimated the amount of number of bullets used per war. I don't know how they did that. And I don't know if these are exact numbers. This is what I found on the internet. You can always trust the internet, right? <laughs> but in World War II, the Allied forces on average shot 25,000 rounds of ammunition for one dead enemy soldier. In the Korean War, that doubled to 50,000 rounds of ammunition for one dead soldier. In Vietnam, they, the American troops, now armed with M14s, M16s, fired on average around 200,000 rounds of ammunition for one dead enemy soldier. To say that they were ineffective would be an understatement. No disrespect. But, there's one soldier on the battlefield that has an entirely different strategy. And they usually operate in pairs and have been trained with a different goal in mind. Right? One shot, one kill. And you know who I'm talking about, right? The combat sniper. Their tactic is not to send a storm of rapid fire down into enemy stronghold, but to fire off one well-directly, rapidly delivered shot at a single enemy. 
That is how they are to perform in war. So as Christians, we should learn from the discipline of the sniper. Christ says we need to maintain a single focus with the goal of having our eye on a single prize, right? Faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. Since we have eternal life guaranteed for us, for those who have faith in Christ. And it's sad how often that we can be tempted or distracted, right, from how we handle our possessions to the, how we handle our time. Jesus has taught us how to look at and how to use our money. And it's a sure barometer of our spiritual condition. Right? And so now he's shown us our sole focus reveals where we stand with him. And so to review, Jesus first showed us that we must choose a single treasure. And secondly, Jesus told us we must choose a single focus. Finally, number three, Jesus says you must choose a single master. You must choose a single master. Our third decision is to pledge a single allegiance. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For the, either he will hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is where Jesus turns up the heat a little bit more on us because he wants us to recognize through this third and final metaphor, right? And, and, and admittedly, it's an awkward one to talk about in today's climate, but it's a biblical one that Jesus wants us to recognize. And the metaphor is that, of slavery. Jesus talks about slavery as an undeniable reality of the day and even describes believers now not slaves unto sin but slaves to righteousness. And here he says no one can serve two masters. Right? Everyone sitting on this on that mountain understood the reality of the idea of masters being slave owners. By definition, right, a slave owner has total control over the slave. There's no such thing as a part-time obligation of a slave. It's a full-time commitment. It's full-time ownership of life. It's dominating and directing and all-consuming reality of that of a slave. You know, this is not when you, like when you call your boss a slave driver, but you can still clock out at 5 o'clock. That's not the picture that we're looking at. And it can be the temptation to think that you, can, that you can make God happy during the day shift and then pursue personal pleasures on your time. That is not how this works. That's not what Jesus is saying. And so I think this is where the church in general has gotten into some trouble. Right, practically speaking, the church wants to reach as many people as possible and inevitably will try to identify the obstacles to reaching people and they'll try to remove those obstacles, right? namely sin. People don't like hearing about sin. And then in general, again, churches selectively choose parts of the Bible that are easier to hear than others and conveniently skip over the parts of the Bible that are more difficult to hear. Sin. Meanwhile, when it comes to getting into people's lives, well, that's just too personal, right? That's too painful. That's too problematic. It's too hard. The decision then is the church might, you know, we should just keep our distance from people. 
No, we're just going to plan services to make people happy. The church will never talk about sin and what it means to sin against a holy God. And the result then is having people who identify as Christians, but they largely live however they want to live. And if you're one of those people, if this sounds like you, the problem comes when, when, a, when, a, when one of your friends comes up to you and they're like, wait a minute, you're a Christian, but you don't live any differently than I do. You have the same off-color humor uh, that you laugh at that I do, right? You're easily prone to anger like I am. And so don't be tricked into thinking just because I go to church or just because I attend men of the word or just because I took communion this morning that I'm a Christian, right? Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You've got to decide. And so where is your allegiance? And if your allegiance is there, then you must be all in. And now what happens here today in the church is that that the the church gets diluted in its witness by people who self-identify as Christians. And and maybe some of them are. But it's confusing to those who are watching because they seem to try to serve two masters. God and money. God and worldly wisdom. God and this world. They're trying to find their place and their identity in two places. And later on in the book of Revelation, it's going to be uh, said of them that that it's like lukewarm water in the mouth of God and he spits them out. He'd rather have them cold or hot, not lukewarm, because you cannot serve two masters. Jesus says "This this is not just another way. This is the better way. And if you put these words into context, again, of what he's talking about, which is the consistent demonstration of faith lived out before a watching world, right? Go back to chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And so Jesus continues to confront the hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is essentially just saying one thing but doing another, even if it just looks good. So you do it to be seen by others, not for God. And you look back at verse 18. Your father sees what is done in secret. He sees what's done in secret and he'll reward you. He will reward you. This should encourage you. Because honestly, so many of you are living for the Lord. I know not perfectly, I know not without regret and in in times where you need to repent, where you've been unfaithful. But I see where you're saying, Lord, my life and all that I have is yours. My skills are yours. My knowledge is yours. My relationship is yours. My possession, my children, my education, whatever I have, you want God. And it's yours. I am your slave. I'm your servant. And I want to please you. I see many of you holding your life that way, where you hold your possessions that way, where you hold your money that way, you hold your job that way. You bring every decision you make to the Lord in prayer, and it's it's you you pray to the Lord, I want this to happen, but it's not my will, but your will be done. And if I'm talking about you, if this sounds like you, I'll echo what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, excel still more, press on. Keep living and loving the Lord. 
Others of you might perhaps find this to be awkwardly uncomfortable. And that's okay, because it means you have a spiritual pulse. Take this as an opportunity with high spirits to, that you could bring to mind areas of your life where you need to make changes to get back in line with what Christ teaches us. Maybe you have pledged allegiance publicly to one master, but you're privately devoted to another. Listen to Luke chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And then the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing him. And so Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The great reformer John Calvin said, Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost all authority. Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost all authority. COC, let me encourage you today. There's nothing in this world that can offer uh, offer you or satisfy you in any way. There's nothing that you can gain today that you cannot immediately lose tomorrow. So as I conclude, there's a story that goes, in 1928, there was a group of the world's most successful financiers who met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Big names were there president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator, president of the New York Stock Exchange, member of the United States president's cabinet, and the greatest banker on Wall Street, just to name a few. These financial tycoons controlled more wealth than there was in the entire United States treasury at the time. And for years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories, encouraging all the young teenagers of the nation to follow their example. But 25 years later, this is what happened to these men. Stories of suicide, bankruptcy, corruption, prison sentences, Ponzi schemes, and isolation. And all these men fell into the trap of thinking just one more dollar will satisfy. Just one more dollar will satisfy. See, the problem is not the money or rather any other related possession that you might have. And conversely, the solution then is not poverty and taking some monastic vow and not owning anything. The problem is when you try to serve God and money. When you try to have two masters. When you try to store for yourselves treasures on earth. When you are not led by the light. Jesus says, serve the Lord and then finally understand freedom. Give your allegiance to him and he will always deliver. In the words of Joshua 24, 15, choose yourselves today whom you will serve. And so I do pray that your lips would pronounce it, that your heart would believe it, and your life would illustrate where your love and life truly lie. Let's pray.
Father, we are thankful for your word. It is so relevant thousands of years later. We, and we shouldn't be surprised. The author of Hebrews says your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that, that your word has pierced our hearts tonight, or this morning, that we would um, examine our hearts, scrutinize our choices, where we are, are storing up treasure, what is guiding us, and which master do we serve.